Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is WXAZ Sapphire Bay's home of the hits. A grisly murder, a small town dentist, a mayor invested in a cover up. A psychic chef who sees the writing on the wall. After what happens this summer, Rocky Ford will never be the same again. When Alexis Bright discovers a body floating in the lake outside her cabin, she is dragged away from the kitchen and into a murder case that will change her life forever. At least she'll get to meet a cute dentist. Don't miss Lake House Murder, the most recent installment of the thrilling Real Events series from I Am Serious. I have devoured every single book in the Real Events series. The characters are so real and their problems are so relatable. Plus, as a dentist, I really love the accuracy of a typical day for a dentist, as well as the gross shit we have to pull out of people's mouths. When the dentist examines the body pulled from the lake, it reminded me of the time... Wait. Wait a second. Winner of the This Was Definitely Made Up Book Awards and a finalist for the Fiction is Fictional Award from Fiction Writers Guild, Lake House Murder is sure to satisfy even the pickiest of readers. My girlfriend and I have read all the books in the series. I'm often shocked by the realism in the text, particularly when I come back from a tough night at the restaurant to read Chef Alexis Bright giving her sous chef the exact same directions I gave mine earlier that evening. You you know what? Actually, let me just real quick. (laughs) Um, I haven't finished Lake House Murder, but um, my house is on a lake, and uh, is this about me? I mean, everyone thinks that, right? (laughs) That thing that happened last summer happens to everyone, right? Like I'm not special or anything. Ha <laughs> ha! Wait, what does that mean? Is this book about me and my girlfriend? Babe, I didn't know you were here. Where is here? What can you see? Babe? 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 Don't miss Lake House Murder. Out now from This Is Not A Novel, This Is Real Publishing. Pre-order it now at your local bookstore or online at www.pleasesomeonehelpme.com. That's P-L-E-A-S-E-S-O-M-E-O-N-E-H-E-L-P-M-E.com. We take you back now to your regularly scheduled programming.
the rings of satellites that monitor and aid our everyday existence, there are further orbits still. These distant signals grow more remote with time, but each of them has a story in the graveyard orbit. enjoyed the cold open. That was fictional book series written by S.E. Flinor and read by Robin Quinn, S.E. Flinor, Wimoto Nyoka, and Riley Silverman. You know, I've got to tell you about this wonderful book I've been reading by Maria Dong. It's called Liar, Dreamer, Thief, and I can't help but feel that it's right up your alley. It's up for pre-order through Hatchet Books now. And I've got to tell you, it's exactly the kind of surreal, genre-bending dive into one lesbian's crisis that I didn't know I needed. In fact, I've got a story from Maria today to whet your appetite for this novel. Now, I hope you've closed those curtains tight. After all, there are a lot of weirdos out there. Surely it's to be expected that you take a peek out through the crack in the blinds every now and again. But be careful you don't get carried away watching your neighbors. Or before you know it, the only thing scarier than the strange ones out there will be the strange one inside. Featuring the voice talents of Robin Quinn, Aaron Mbanta, Sarah Century, and Tanner Rush, this is The Deck by Maria Dong. The cracked blinds deposit an itch under Maya's skin. She just wants curtains, wants her home to reflect some part of herself. She hunts with the same eagerness that marked her brief forays in the online dating, scrounging for sales, googling how to make low ceilings look higher, her mouse pin, pin, pinning her top choices. But the house has lots of windows and an open floor plan. Everything needs to match, and the cheapest panels she can find are $10 a piece. They can't afford that. How can anybody? Maya's husband Sam bought the small salt box three years ago when she was halfway through graduate school. She's not on the mortgage. She already had enough student loans to make her untouchable. It took her two grueling years to finish her degree only eight hours to drive straight back to Michigan and move into a house she'd never seen. From the second she stepped in, she felt the icy draft that spooled down from the attic despite the summer heat. A ghost, or the memory of one. Maya isn't surprised. In movies, 
Hauntings always happen in giant sprawling mansions, or the burnt-out shells of decrepit gilded-aged hotels. But Maya's experience has taught her that affordable housing is much more likely to be haunted. All it takes is someone sweeping black mold under the rug, lead in the water, one unfair eviction that leads to a family freezing to death in the street. She walks on eggshells for a week, not sure if these tidings are good or bad, but the spirit never emerges from its hiding place, never attempts to communicate, and never materializes in any form except for the intermittent cold air current that Sam doesn't seem to feel. Their dog, Mr. Bojangles, doesn't pay the ghost any mind, although he's had an extra two years to get used to it. A good six months go by before she turns her attention from the ghost to the house itself. She hasn't started fixing it up, because that kind of work requires time, energy, knowledge, and money. Four things that Maya is always without. But there are some things she can still manage. She rips off the metal backsplash in the kitchen with a borrowed claw hammer. She buys paint on deep discount, a neutral moss green, and laboriously applies it to every standing interior wall. It takes her an entire day to finish, paint dripping to the floor despite her best efforts. And by then, she's lightheaded from the heat and exertion. She opens the hatch of the attic and stands underneath, hoping for a breath of the ghost to cool her hot skin. Nothing happens, and she resorts to standing in front of the fridge with the door open. The next morning, Mr. Bojangles acts funny, staring at the ceiling and barking. She glances up at the hatch and finds a damaged spot in the new latex right below, a mess of peeling paint that curls like shaved chocolate. She grabs a ladder and maneuvers it over to the wall so she can see it up close. The shape of the damage clearly indicates a handprint. She holds her hand up to it and is not surprised to find the fingers are half an inch longer than her own. Sam bought the house through a government program that provides low-interest, no-down-payment mortgages to people that don't qualify anywhere else, with the kvat that one moves to a low-population-density area. Living in the middle of a bunch of cornfields was too tall a proposition at first. They wasted tearful months looking for an apartment, Maya dictating ordered lists of needs and wants and budgetary considerations over the phone in the breaks between classes. But rents had skyrocketed in their mid-sized city. The college was expanding, drawing in more students, and a pharmaceutical corporation and a wood pulp manufacturer had taken advantage of new tax rebates designed to revitalize the city. They set up two new factories, which had swelled the population to bursting. Those that couldn't buy were fighting over the scraps that were left. Mr. Bojangles proved to be a major limiting factor. Maybe it was an impossible folly to put a dog before themselves, but Mr. Bojangles had been with Maya for a long time through three apartments, five romantic partners, and three jobs. They'd been homeless together once. Their bodies curled around each other in the back of a 97 Honda Civic, like an oyster in its pearl, their breath slowly melting the frost off the windshield during a string of frigid March mornings. Sam and Maya couldn't afford to rent. They couldn't afford to buy either, until they saw the program. And truthfully, not even then. But moving away from the city, away from the grocery stores and book clubs and the liberal minds of university folk, Maya was terrified. There was no hiding the brown of her skin, and she didn't want to drag Sam to a place where he'd have to worry about passing more than he already did. When she argued with Sam, though, her justifications for staying in the city included other smaller fears, pulled out like long wooden slivers from her core. 
they'd have to brave the winters to commute to work. And the list of things that could go wrong with the house was both long and crushingly heavy. What if it caught fire? What if the furnace gave out? What if the roof failed? It did, in the second year. As a side note, their list of proposed catastrophes didn't include what if the previous owner had added on a laundry room and had been too lazy to tie it into the village sewer and instead had constructed a secret underground cistern? And what if that cistern started to overflow eight months after we bought the place and flooded the driveway with scuzzy, stinky water? Which just proves there isn't a way to plan for all calamities, despite how hard they tried. But there were no better options. Sam sat up with her at night on the phone until she believed him. They could do this. They'd have Mr. Bojangles. It would be okay. They bought a two-bed, one-bath boarded on both sides by a single block before the houses fell away to farms. They were lucky in that they only had to move 40 miles away, which meant that if they weren't too tired and the weather wasn't too bad, it wasn't a big deal to trek into the city for a movie or a grocery store. There was even a one-room library around the corner. To Maya's delight, she found they could get anything her old library had, as long as she was willing to wait for them to send it over. Still, Maya is the only person her shade she's seen in the village. Yes, an actual village. She still can't get over it. And Sam is careful. The kind of careful that keeps Maya up at night, wondering if they did the right thing. He drives an hour when he needs to see a doctor, clear to the other side of the city they left, to lessen the chances of somebody bringing back news that he's trans. Sam and Maya only need to glance down their block at the confederate flags that hang from houses like beauty queen sashes to know that this isn't the kind of place that would be accepting. And so, they pass the first year inside, hidden away from their neighbors, Maya spying through the blinds on a bucolic world that is both beautiful and unwelcoming. Maya's cousin calls with news about the sale at Big Lots. Store closing, everything half off including clearance items. She drives like her hair is on fire. She rummages and shifts like a miner panning for gold. At the bottom of a bin of discontinued items, she finds her bounty. A huge stack, only $3 a curtain panel. Heaven opens up and shines down its light. Let there be curtains. Paisley isn't her favorite pattern, but the panels aren't revolting and the length is good. She buys the entire stack. Hanging doesn't go smoothly. The long curtain rods are heavy. She's sure her new stud finder is broken. It takes days, one of which is just calling every big lots in a hundred mile radius because she's two panels short. In the end, though, the living room looks marvelous. She sits and wonders at the way the sunlight streams in, dabbled from the trees, waving with each breeze like a shadow play. She scrounged up enough fabric that the panels fold elegantly and drape just so. Even Sam, who hates change as a general rule, is forced to concede that they are worth the money. At night, of course, there is no sun, so Maya gets a hanging lamp in the shape of a lotus from Goodwill and pairs it with a string of fairy lights. The first evening, she breathes a sigh of happiness, sufficed with the warm glow that comes from gazing at something lovely, and thinks, is this what it's like to be rich? To have beautiful things around us all the time? That's when she starts thinking about the deck. Somewhere to sit and enjoy the outdoors, but Maya and Sam can't even afford full-price curtain panels, much less an entire structure. She looks up at the attic hatch and sighs, as if giving her dream to the ghost for safekeeping. 
The house is over a hundred years old, but not in the way that one might hope. It takes money to preserve the past. Besides the ghosts, which has not intervened since the handprint, there are a few signs of the house's status as centenarian. The crumbling corner of the foundation that is not cement like the rest of it, but instead fieldstone, stackled like giant river pebbles. The red brick chimney that runs into a dirt basement, complete with a moldering coal chute. Standing down there, she can see the joist, the house held up not by beams, but by tree trunks, felled and installed whole. And Maya's favorite part, the three ancient trees in the backyard, six-story tall bastions of shade from the moist summer heat. With time, they find more hidden clues to the house's history, like secrets pushing to the surface. They tear out the trashed and ancient carpet and discover wood floors underneath, splintering and flaking finish, worn with the passions of a million steps. They drill through the drywall to mount the television and bore into a layer of plaster and lathe. And when Sam digs the beds for his garden, eventually converting the lawn into a massive, rioting Eden of birds and plants and fragrant herbs, he pulls up an assortment of tiny glass perfume bottles, broken and stamped with dates that span the last century. Maya likes to imagine peeling off the layers of vinyl to expose wooden siding, hammered on by the people that once lived under the low ceilings. She checks City Hall and the library, eager to put a name to their attic spirit, but all records of previous occupants turned to smoke in a fire in 1989. Still, given the demographics and history of the area, their ghost probably doesn't appreciate Maya and Sam living here, and probably doesn't like the changes the pair has made. For the changes only, she doesn't blame the ghost. She feels guilty every time she and Sam have to fix something, because there's always loss in the game. When the roof goes, they discover water seeping through the chimney, through cracks in the crumbling mortar between the bricks. Almost $10,000 to fully restore the chimney. $700 to knock it off, shingle it over, and pretend it never existed. Maya's regretful, but she grew up with an immigrant mother, one that taught her not to cry over sentiment. And so, two men take their sledgehammers to it. Brick rolls from the roof to the ground with drastic thuds of cannonball hits. A frantic Mr. Bojangles has to be medicated against the noise. Each strike rings, ting, ting, through the entire house, vibrating the stacked bricks all the way down to the dirt basement floor. To Maya, it sounds like the house is wailing. She worries the ghost will be angry. But the new roof is watertight and guaranteed for 20 years. Before long, she forgets that there was ever a chimney in the first place. If the house has a pinnacle, it's the garden. Maya's sure that even the house's past owner appreciates Sam's work. In the summer, the pair eat from its bounty and admire the flowers while cautiously avoiding the bees. Mr. Bojangles patrols against rabbits, bounding from corner to corner with the resolute energy of a captain leading a charge of troops, his rounds backlit with a constant fanfare of birdsong. The neat tilled rows contrast with the back of the lot where Sam has let the prairie grasses and wildflowers reestablish themselves, the long blades rippling in the breeze like ocean waves. Maya can only enjoy it in slices. She wilts under the hot sun, and something about her skin drives the omnipresent flies and mosquitoes into a frenzy. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. 
It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's been years already since the evening she curled on her couch to admire her curtains and fairy lights and wonder if the lives of the rich are cloaked in beautiful things. She still dreams of a deck just large enough for a small screen gazebo. A place to sit out as the sun is rising and enjoy the coffee and the songs of birds. It's even more of a pipe dream now. Last week, two of the rotten fence panels blew down in the middle of a thunderstorm. Two swift bangs that Maya didn't figure out until later when Mr. Bojangles suddenly streaked through the opening. After finding out a new fence will cost $8,000, Maya and Sam resort to tethering the fence post and panels to the trees with some rope and hoping they'll stay upright. If there was money... They'd need it for the floors, the fence, and the furnace is almost as old as Maya. But then Maya remembers the handprint by the attic hatch, and her palm itches, as if she can feel the ridges of the paint under her skin. There's a good chance that hand once swung a hammer, had maybe even built one of the additions. And while Maya and Sam had never built anything, she managed the curtain rods, and they found a way to mount the TV. The more Maya thinks about it, the sure she is. She wants a deck. She brings the idea up to Sam, and when he protests, she does what she does best. Maya is a trained storyteller who is also a queen of wearing people down. She starts with spoken word sonnets to their new life, painting epics of idyllic afternoons that'll pass enraptured by the artistry of Sam's green thumb. The nutty coffee they'll sip, the delicious barbecue they will eat, ribs for Sam, and roasted portobello caps for Maya. No longer will Maya nag Sam to come in from the garden and spend time with her, not when she can go out and sit near him. The deck will be a gift to both of them. He is, however, still fearful. Maya, we don't even own a saw. She puts her Pinterest skills to work, sends him diagrams and YouTube videos of regular people building decks as if it's the easiest thing in the world. So easy, you can squeeze it into the commercial breaks of your favorite show. 
What about the time the washer hose broke? Damn. She knew he'd bring that up. Bring up the way they sat crying on the floor with their phones in hand as they googled things like how to tell drywall is bad. She tries again, weaves a different spell, one of gumption and bootstraps and sticking it to the man that's always tried to bleed to dry. She can almost hear a patriotic song in the background. I'm not attaching a death contraption to our house. Maya has prepared an answer for this because it is an objection she shares. We can make it freestanding. If it doesn't work out, we could just burn it. Our neighbors are always burning things. In the end, Sam rolls his eyes and says yes. The next day, he goes out to measure and dig the holes. Perfect, thinks Maya. After all, how hard can this be? By the end of the first hour, Maya is ready to admit defeat. Building a deck is the hardest thing she's ever done. As it turns out, a 10-foot board weighs the rough equivalent of a car, and the very idea that they somehow can get the new frame level, square, and plumb when just holding a single post makes her arms tremble and her temper short, what were they thinking? The ground isn't anything close to level, which makes estimating where to put the planks for the frame almost impossible. They don't own a wrench or a socket large enough for the lag bolts or a big enough drill for the pilot hole, which means they resort to a tire iron, the two of them straining in concert while the bolt slowly bites its way into the wood. They're both terrified of the new power saw. It takes 20 minutes of arguing before a sullen Sam reluctantly agrees to be the first to operate it. When it comes time to hang the joist, they take turns with the hammer. Maya tries not to die as she holds a board in place and waits for Sam to hammer in the ends. She only makes it two joists before her arms are so tired she drops one end of the board on her foot. Crying, she calls for a break and brainstorms before grabbing the jack out of the trunk of her car. They use it to brace up one side of the board they're working on, Maya and Sam swapping turns on the other, and that small action feels like an impossible win. By the second day, Maya has entered parts of her body she didn't know existed. A muscle in her instep, victim of her having to hold a perfect squat just so while Sam hammers the frame to the post, each nail starting straight and turning up or down at the end like a vicious metal sneer. Maya googles the correct technique for hammering in a nail. The secret is to start on the head, let the movement and power come from the elbow, and snap the wrist at the end, and the nail starts to pop down in quick burst. It's a heady victory, and she could see from the mostly parallel joists that they're learning, but then Maya wakes to find she strained a muscle in her wrist. She wraps it tightly, and they soldier on. Little by little, the deck takes on recognizable forms, each stays resembling something else, like tracing constellations or pulling shapes out of the clouds. The six holes for the post are four feet deep, concrete poured at the very bottom to anchor the post so they won't heave. When they're dug and everything is dry, Maya tells Sam it looks like some massive squirrel has torn their yard apart to find a buried cache of food. They shoo Mr. Bojangles away, fearful that he'll fall in and hurt himself, but he seems driven to investigate them. Once the frame is up, the construction looks vaguely like a crown, what with the way the posts jut up at each corner. From the side, it looks more like a dock, floating above the herb garden. Maya's favorite stage is right after they put the joist in. From the right angle, the forming deck becomes a whale spine, mostly because of the one curving side. Despite their measurements, each joist they cut ends up slightly long for its rightful spot in the frame, and they resort to hammering and stomping them in, bowing out one of the frame's sides. 
I hope that's safe. What if it's something structural? It's fine. Maya doesn't know how to tell if something is structural, but she knows that as hard as it was to get the joist in, what with the side nails and the metal hangers that look vaguely like the jawbone of a horrific prehistoric fish, it'll be impossible to take them back out. They're not going to try. The wood will shrink over time. I don't see how that helps. Sam's right, but Maya doesn't tell him. The boards that go on top, the decking, turn out to be the easiest part, which still isn't very easy. They break two drill bits and discover they've miscalculated the number of screws needed, which results in two extra trips to the hardware store, 40 miles each way. At one point, Maya forgets which boards are finished and steps on a loose one that flips sideways, and her foot gets caught between two joists. She's also too weak to get the decking boards right, so Sam hangs off the end as Maya screws them down and listens to her husband complain about his arms turning to jelly. In the end, the deck isn't plumb or level, and it certainly isn't square. Even under the boards, she easily spots the curved side of this frame, the whale backbone. Their construction is probably not even safe. In the unflushed corners, the bones of nails glint bright in their holes. Maya has the feeling that if the ghosts can see this, a ghost from a generation of builders that erected houses without the benefit of YouTube or power tools, it's either steaming with rage or laughing its head off. But the deck is standing. It holds their weight. They buy a screened-in canopy tent on clearance. Friends visit from the city, making the trek out to the middle of nowhere. A few weeks later, Maya sits on the deck, gazing out at the garden while lightning bugs dance in the dark. Sam's at a co-worker's birthday party, and Mr. Bojangles curls up in her lap, his eyes closed, his eyebrows and ears jumping as he hovers at the edge of sleep. A cool breeze trickles down the back of Maya's neck. I have seen better construction. Maya gasps and jumps upright, spilling Mr. Bojangles onto the deck. He scrabbles away as she takes a deep breath and turns around as slowly as she can. Ghosts are like bullies, like angry dogs. Best not to show them your fear. The ghost is taller than Maya, with long, slim limbs. Her skin is pale, but other than that, there's nothing that immediately screams dead about her. She's in a modest, ankle-length dress that surprises Maya with its plainness. No bustle or elaborate starched collar, no layers of lace or crinoline. At her feet, Mr. Bojangles glares, completely unperturbed by the appearance of the attic spirit, but upset with Maya for letting him fall out of her lap. Hello. The ghost waves her words away and climbs down off the deck. An awkward proposition, as Maya and Sam have still not gotten around to building stairs. She smooths her dress and circles around the deck once, inspecting it with a severe expression, before climbing back up and sitting down in one of the two chairs. Maya isn't sure what to do next, but it seems rude to stand in front of someone seated, so she takes the other chair. Made the joists too long. Damn side, it's curving like a bow. Maya swallows hard. She would have insisted on taking them back out and trimming them if she had known this was going to happen. The silence stretches on, long and tense, like the time that Maya almost stepped right on the head of a snake and froze. I'm sorry. She finally blurts out. Uh, about the chimney. We didn't have money to save it. The ghost expression turns hard, but then her gaze sweeps over the garden. 
This is nice, she says, pointing one of her fingers at something in the back. Are those lilacs? Yes. Although she doesn't actually know. She can't even tell the cooking herbs apart. I used to have lilacs once. Maya nods. This time, the tension in the silence is more mechanical than danger, awaiting like a held breath. The fence looks like... shit. The ghost turns and smiles at Maya, and the two of them burst into laughter. (laughs) It's like the bang of one of the fence panels blowing down in the wind, everything turning sideways at once, leaving an opening for sudden freedom. The next thing Maya knows... She's launched into the tail of the deck's construction. They go snorting and guffawing as Maya guides the interactive tour of her and Sam's errors. This is the joist that Maya dropped on her foot. That is where Maya and Sam first realized they were installing the joist hangers wrong and had to go back to the beginning. When she finishes her story, the ghost tells one of her own. This was in the 20s, maybe 23. It was very fashionable to have a mural in the bathroom. Right above the tile wainscot. I saw one in Ladies Home Journal and was dying for one, but we couldn't afford it. Then Sears started offering these printed wallpaper murals and I bought one and put it up right away. Maya feels it then. The curling tendril of commonality between them. Like the soft extension of a vine. Back then, you had to put the paste on first and then the paper and... It went okay, a little wrinkled, but I was so proud. I couldn't stop looking at it, and then I had a dinner party three days later, and a guest was in the bathroom, and a whole big sheet came down all at once and fell right on top of her head. (laughs) She ran out screaming, saying, We had a ghost. The ghost gives Maya a wink. How right she turned out to be. Maya laughs until her sides hurt. They talk about life in the 10s and the 20s and the 30s, about what it was like to be married back then, and how things are so much better now. They talk at length about Maya's plans for the house. I like the paint you chose. We didn't have latex back then. Would have made things a lot easier. Sorry for sticking my hand into it. Didn't know it was still wet. Something flutters in Maya's heart. Years later, when she and Sam finally have the money to paint rooms in different colors, she'll redo the entire house, except for the handprint on the wall. That, she will put a frame around. And when people ask about it, she'll say that some art is meant to be a secret. This has been nice. It's nice to know that someone will be taking care of this place. She smiles, and her eyebrow goes up. Oh, I forgot to mention, I like your curtains. Maya's eyes cloud over with tears. When she bleaks them away, the ghost is gone, and she knows it isn't coming back. The air turns warm again. Maya looks out at the garden, and it suddenly doesn't matter that her neighbors have never made her or Sam feel welcome. That civilization is so far away. For the first time, Maya truly feels like their house is their home. How could she not? when the ghost of the house is giving Maya her blessing. The feeling lasts for about an hour, just long enough for her to sip a glass of wine and think about beautiful things. And then she finds that she can't stop staring at the fence, how badly it leans. And there's also the shed, which is falling apart, 
the doors rotting off in big clumps. How hard is it, exactly, to fix a fence? She decides it won't hurt to look. She queues up a video on her phone and watches it for long enough to get the gist. Learns the name of the parts and estimated cost. They already have the tools. Sam will take convincing. But they can do it in stages, a little bit at a time. If it doesn't work, they can always put it in the burn pile. After all, how hard can it be? presents Graveyard Orbit, a part of the Decoded Horror Channel and an Okie Dokie LLC production with Queer Spec Publishing. Graveyard Orbit is produced by Sarah Century. Sound engineering is provided by Nathaniel Hubbard, creator of the podcast Tighten Up the Defense, and a writer for Garden Plus with Skeletor. Musical assistance for the series has been provided by Kate Warner, Katie Taylor, and Sarah Century. Any additional music attribution will be in the show notes. Thanks to S.E. Fleenor as publisher and editorial director at Queer Spec, Monica Estrella Negra as decoded editor, Priya Saxena for copy editing and marketing support, and Maria Violante for web support. Episode art is by Sarah Century. Please visit queerspec.com or decodedpride.com for more details on the episode and the people who bring you this podcast, as well as merch and links to other Queer Spec projects. To show further support for the podcast, follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queerspec. All Decoded Horror Stories belong to their respective writers. This podcast, all voice recordings, transcripts, and any portion thereof may not be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher, except for the brief use of quotations and reviews. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.